Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Today we're going to study verses 18 through 25. If you're using your pew Bibles today, you might want to uh, turn to page 1212. Peter has told us that we have been born again to a living hope, and that hope has far-reaching impl implications for how we are to live uh, our life in this world. It has implications for how we, as God's people, are to relate to the culture around us. And today we will see that Peter begins to get into the specifics and the particulars. And today he calls us, uh, he had, uh, called us to honor that hope in the way that we work. What difference does hope in Christ make to the way that we do our work? How does Christ heal you for the work that he has called you to do? We're going to consider the uh, implications of the gospel for our work this morning. We're going to see that it uh, also raises uh, a challenging issue that we'll have to spend a little bit of time addressing because Peter is speaking to uh, slaves here and calling them to be submissive to their masters. How are we to understand uh, Peter's exhortation? Let us look here and give attention to God's word. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor with God if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that he might die to sin and live, to, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts and we ask that your Holy Spirit would grant us wisdom and insight into your word. We love you, Father, and we love your Son because you sent him as a suffering servant in order to serve us, to bear our sins. Father, help us now in the work that you have called us to do, to show that same kind of love and service to those who are around us, both the good and the gentle, as well as the harsh. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible says a lot about work. It uh, gives us a lot of uh, understanding of the rich implications of the gospel for how we are to approach work, how we are to view work, it gives us a whole new approach to work. It transforms our understanding of what we are really doing and what we are really about in the work that God has called us to do. Peter says uh, one thing in this passage which is of vital importance for understanding your role in whatever work that God has called you to do at this point and uh, this phase in your life. 
And the insight that he gives us is that the image of Christ as the suffering servant is being written on your heart and life in the work that you are called to do. It is in the image of the suffering servant uh, is to his image that you are being conformed. And that has uh, far-ranging ra- uh, uh, implications for our work. You see, at one point, all of us were dead in our transgressions and sins, and we lived for self. I lived for me. And that has implications for work. When we work, we worked for the money, so I could get a paycheck, and so I could go home on my own time and with money that I earned and spend my money on, my, uh, uh, on whatever, doing whatever I wanted to do. We regarded work as a kind of necessary evil, so we get a paycheck and go home and do what we really want to do. Or we pursued work for personal fulfillment, a sense of personal dignity that we wanted to feel, and that too can be a selfish motive. But now we are no longer dead in our transgressions and sins uh, as those who are in Christ who have been made alive together with him. We are new creatures. Peter wants us to understand that. He says we have been, uh, the Father has caused us to be born again into a living hope. We have been born of imperishable seed, the living and enduring word of the Lord, the gospel that has been proclaimed to us, the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been born again. We are new people. And as new people, we are being conformed increasingly to a very specific image and likeness, and that is the image and the likeness of Christ who came as a suffering servant. You and I will have a very difficult time understanding the things that are happening to us in the workplace, some of the struggles and the dynamics that are happening to us as God's people, if we do not understand and have a clear sense of our calling, that we are being shaped and fashioned and formed to be like the one who has saved us, the suffering servant. Today we're going to look at our calling to be suffering servants. We're going to look at the mold to which we are being increasingly conformed, and we're going to look at the servant who heals our sinful hearts and makes us new. So we're going to look at those three things. But before we can begin, we have to address a potentially uh, very serious, it is a very serious objection, uh, a potential objection that uh, may be in your minds, that you will encounter this objection. Peter seems in this passage, by calling slaves or servants to be submissive to their masters, he seems to be condoning slavery. Perhaps you can feel a sense of the difficulty that poses. Perhaps even in your own heart, you understand the difficulty. The objection is if Jesus and his apostles were wrong on slavery, the argument goes, how can we trust anything that they said? Should not Peter, instead of directing slaves to be submissive to their masters, shouldn't he have instead condemned slavery as an institution outright? It's a serious objection, and we want to take it seriously. How do we take that objection seriously, and yet also give an answer to it. We might say many things, and one of them is to point out the differences between uh, slavery here in America and slavery in the ancient world. When we read these uh, passages, it is naturally to import our understanding of slavery into the passage. Slavery here in America, all slavery is evil, but slavery here in America was particularly evil. It was race-based, it was lifelong, and it was based on kidnapping. 
First of all, uh, only blacks here in America were slaves. It was a racist institution, and it was wrong. It was a great evil. Our denomination, being a southern denomination, has had historically, as we have looked uh, to our forefathers, have had to acknowledge before the Lord our involvement in this racist institution and recognize that it is wrong. And more recently, at our, at our last General Assembly, we uh, looked again at the vestiges of racism and had to again acknowledge that those things are wrong before the Lord. Here in America, slavery was particularly evil. It is important to understand some differences with slavery as it was practiced in, uh, uh, in the ancient world. In the ancient world, anyone could be a slave. Any race, anyone of any ethnic background. Some slaves became slaves by being captured in war. And uh, as prisoners of war, they became slaves to those who had defeated them. More commonly, by far the most common reason that people became slaves was because they incurred debt. They ran up a very large debt, they couldn't repay it, and there's no bankruptcy in the ancient uh, world. And so people sold themselves into slavery in order to repay that debt. And that meant that uh, slavery in the ancient world was not a lifelong institution. It only lasted as long as it took to repay the debt. The average time period for a slave in the ancient world was about 10 years. That's how long uh, the average uh, debt took to pay. Finally, in the ancient world, uh, while in every institution of slavery there is mistreatment, in the ancient world, we may be surprised to discover that some slaves were actually quite prosperous. Some of those who had large debts that they couldn't repay were very wealthy and highly educated. Some slaves were professors. They were doctors. They were lawyers. They were civil servants. They were administrators. Some were sculptors or farmers or painters. Some slaves uh, prospered immensely, especially when they had good and gentle masters, as Peter describes. Others did indeed have very unreasonable masters who were harsh in their treatment, and there was great abuse in the ancient world. But many slaves uh, prospered, and that's not, that's not something that we normally associate with our understanding of slavery. Uh, all slavery is evil, particularly here in America, in America, it was particularly evil. Now, I'm aware of the fact that none of this answers the original objection. But it does provide important perspective that we can better understand uh, the situation. So we might wonder, why, did not, why didn't Jesus and the apostles simply uh, abolish and condemn slavery as an evil institution? And what I would like to argue as others have done, is that what Jesus and the apostles did was far more powerful and effective than an outright condemnation of the institution ever would have been in that particular culture. See, what Jesus and the apostles did was to so transform slavery at its core that it brought slavery down from within. One scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, says, what Paul's letters do is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and eventually die. It may be helpful to observe that every major culture in, uh, until the modern era, without exception, had the institution of slavery. And the only place where the idea arose that slavery was evil and an institution to be abolished was within Christianity itself. 
It's a pretty strong claim, but consider, how did uh, slavery in Britain come to an end? There was a man, a Christian named William Wilberforce, who campaigned for 20 long years in Parliament against the institution of slavery. And finally, the Parliament, towards the end of his life, in the year 1807, finally passed the Slave Aid Tract, which brought an end to slavery in England. A Christian who had convictions, who knew that this was evil, stood against it. Here in America, it was Abraham Lincoln who issued the Emancipation Proclamation and brought slavery to an end here in America. And Abraham, uh, Abraham Lincoln was uh, a Christian. He read his Bible daily. He prayed daily. He was a devout uh, Christian. Only within Christianity did the idea arise that slavery, practiced everywhere in the whole world, was evil and it was to be abolished. Well, how did the gospel so transform slavery as to bring it down from within? What, what do we mean by that? Well, consider several teachings. First of all, uh, the Bible says that all Christians are slaves of Christ. You know, Paul says uh, the, the slave is Christ's freed man and, and the free man is Christ's slave. So all of us are slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a very kind master. All uh, masters and slaves were equals in the sight of God, and that had a way of leveling the playing field. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are one in Christ. The gospel teaches us that in Christ there is no longer rich or poor, male or female, slave or free. All are one in Christ. Paul did send Philemon, for instance, back to Onesimus, his master, but Onesimus received him as a beloved brother. And perhaps above all things, Christ himself, when he came, came as a suffering servant. Come back to that in just a moment. One uh, scholar, Miroslav Wolf, argues that this teaching, this biblical teaching, so transformed the master-slave relationship that while it was still there in form as an institution, the slave was to work for his master, as Peter says here in this passage, slavery has been abolished even though its outer shell remains. Elsewhere, he goes uh, into a little bit more detail. He says, The call to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, much more effective in changing the unjust, political, economic, and familial structures than any direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed the worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a po uh, politics of dominion at its core. What he is saying, we must understand, is that slavery at its core is built on a false notion of God. That God in heaven is the great master, and all creation serves him as his slaves. And when we have that conception of God, we begin to desire to be a slave and to have others serve us and gratify our desires. But when Jesus came, revealing God perfectly, he came as a suffering servant and revealed that God is not himself served by anything in all creation as though he needed anything. He has infinite power. He does not need anyone to serve him. But God is himself the great servant of all who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. The understanding of God was transformed in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came as a servant. No worldly power, no worldly fame, no money, to speak of, and he came, as he himself told us, not to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Seeing God rightly and being served by Jesus changes the way that we view slaves. If Christ is a slave, if God is a slave, then we begin to identify with those who are servants. All of us are servants if God himself is a servant, and to be like him is to be a servant. It gave dignity to slaves. But that understanding also began to set people free from their slavery to wealth and to power. It gave them the strength that they needed, uh, people like William Wilberforce and people like Abraham Lincoln, to stand against slavery and eventually to abolish it. So as we read this passage, just understand Peter is not condoning slavery. He is not interested in merely preserving the status quo and trying to avoid rocking the boat. What he is uh, doing is uh, his interest is to proclaim the suffering servant and to teach all of us in our relationship with Christ to identify with slaves, for we are now slaves of righteousness. That proclamation of Jesus as the suffering servant, however, was the death knell for slavery. The institution could not stand once Jesus Christ was revealed as the suffering servant. To see what Peter is doing a little bit better, uh, we need to pay careful attention to what he is doing as we go along in this passage. And today, I've uh, got to be relatively brief, obviously. We're going to look at our calling. We're going to look at the mold to which we are being conformed. And then finally, we are going to look at the Savior who heals our hearts. So first of all, let us look at our calling. Our calling, uh, you see uh, Peter referring to using that language in verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To be servants, to do good for others, even when you are mistreated and suffer uh, unjustly. That is our calling. It's one of the uh, really important understandings, the way that uh, it shapes our understanding of the work that we are called to do. For many Christians, their understanding of the difference that faith makes or the difference that the gospel makes to work does not really go much farther than thinking that in the workplace I should be doing evangelism. Or that with the money that I make, I should be uh, giving some of it away to churches and to charities. Or very simply, that uh, as a Christian, I should pray for God's providence in my business. But it's important for us to understand that Christ does not merely give you one more thing to do in the workplace, evangelize. He does not merely call you to use some of your money differently to give to churches and to charities. What Jesus does is he transforms our whole understanding of work. He gives us a brand new approach to the work that God has called us to do. We are not to approach work as a way to get more money for ourselves merely or to seek personal fulfillment as we oftentimes do. In Christ, we are to pursue our work as a way to love our neighbor and to serve other people and to even serve our earthly uh, bosses and masters. So let's walk through this briefly and see uh, what Peter is saying. He is saying, uh, remember, we have a calling. It is to do good work for our masters, our earthly uh, authorities, our earthly employers, even when you are not appreciated, but are actually mistreated in some way or another. That's our calling. He calls us in verse 18 to be submissive to, our, uh, to earthly authority. In this case, for slaves, for masters, for us, it would be to our earthly employers. Uh, this grows out of the fundamental uh, or the uh, general command that Peter had given in verse 13. Look back there. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human creature. One of those creatures is the king and the governors and those who are in civil authority. But another, Peter is saying, he's becoming more specific now, 
we are also, uh, our masters are also people that we are to honor and the way that we do our work. Notice he says we are to serve, what does it say in verse 18 in your translation? With all respect. Now Peter may be saying that we are to show respect to our earthly employers. But I think that actually he has a uh, different understanding in mind. Uh, the uh, literal translation might be, be submissive to your masters in all fear. He has been speaking in the previous ver uh, verse about fearing God. Notice in verse 13 again that it is for the Lord's sake that we are to submit ourselves to every human institution. Notice in verse 19 that it is for the sake of conscience toward God that we are to do good and bear up under unjust suffering. So it seems that what Peter has in mind is not that we are to uh, submit ourselves to our masters with all respect. We are to honor and to respect our masters. But what he really means, what he really has in mind, is that we are to serve others out of reverence for God. That understanding is really important if you follow Peter to the end of the verse where he says that we are to serve uh, not only the good and the gentle, whom we have an easy time respecting, but also those who are unreasonable. That word for unreasonable just means corrupt, crooked. If you serve an earthly master who is crooked, and here uh, we are to think especially crooked in their dealings with you. They are excessively uh, harsh in their assessment of your work. They are excessive in the consequences that they deal out for you in uh, the work that you are called to do. So that there is unjust treatment. You are suffering unjustly. But even those who are crooked in the ways that they deal with you, even them, you are to serve. If we are to simply respect our masters, and that is why we serve them, it will be very difficult, in fact impossible, for us to continue to do good work uh, for those who mistreat us. But if we serve out, out of reverence for the Lord, and he is the master that we are ultimately serving in our work, then we are able increasingly to do good work, both for the good and the gentle, the ones who treat us well, and even for those who do not treat us well. So uh, what does that look like in practice? As you go to work tomorrow, whatever work God has called you to do, maybe that's school for some of you, some of you are retired, there's still work, ways that God has called you to serve. Some of you uh, work in the home and others of you are out in the workforce in some place or other. How do you pursue the work that God has called you to do in light of what Peter is saying? First of all, we uh, submit ourselves to our, our earthly employers uh, first of all, by not giving eye service, Ephesians 6, 6. And what that means very simply is we don't do hard work only when the boss or other people are standing around watching. Even when we're alone, we continue to give our best and do hard work for uh, our employers. I'm ashamed to say that when I was in college and my boss was away from work on a Friday afternoon, we would play video games. And if he came back to work, we would quickly hide the controller and pretend to be doing hard work. That's wrong. That is not the way that we honor the Lord. We are not to give eye service just to make it look good when people are watching. But even when people are not watching, we work to the best of our ability. We don't give eye service. We work heartily, Colossians 3, verse 22. Some of you are very bright, and you are able to get by, skate by in your work on your intelligence and your charm. You don't have to give 100% in order to get by and to do the work that you are called to do. That is wrong. We are to work heartily. That means we are to give 110% of our capacity for the good of our employer. 
even when we really don't need to. We are to give our best, put our whole heart into it. We are to be trustworthy, Titus 2, verse 10. And that means not only that our bosses can rely on us to do the work that they have asked us to do, but also that we as, as employees seek to become competent in whatever work we are called to do. We, that means, you know, we train ourselves. We seek the training that we need in order to serve our bosses well. We try to do the best of our ability, and we become trustworthy in that sense. And finally, we are to serve with goodwill, Ephesians 6, verse 7. You know, it's easy to go about all these things and be begrudging and have a hard heart and a bad attitude in your work. But in Ephesians 6, 7, Paul calls us to do our work with goodwill, genuinely desiring to do good for our employers. And finally, we are called to do all these things even when we are mistreated. We're not appreciated. Quite the opposite. We are taken advantage of, and we are mistreated, and we suffer unjustly in our work. And notice what Peter says. He says, this is the grace of God. Uh, in verse 19, where it says this finds favor, it's uh, probably a, a little bit of a misleading translation. Literally, it says, this is grace. In verse 20, he says, it's no credit to you when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. He is saying there's nothing remarkable about acting out in work and then uh, receiving unjust, uh, excessive punishment and consequences as a result. God doesn't have to have his hand in that sort of a situation. That's just the same old, same old. That's the way the world is. Servants will try to act out, and those who are in charge will oftentimes come down with excessive harshness upon them. God does not have to have his hand in that kind of a situation. But this is grace. We might ask ourselves, if the great king of glory were to give you a wonderful gift, if he were to favor you with a real blessing in relationship to the work that he has called you to do, what, the, what would that look like? Can you imagine it in your minds? What's the best gift in relation to work? You might say, to be independently wealthy, then I wouldn't have to work at all. That would be great. Not the best gift. To goof off and get away with it. Okay, we know that's not the gift. Maybe to do good work and to be rewarded for it. Ah, oh, that would be the best gift that God would give us. But here, notice what Peter is saying. This is the grace of God. When you do good and you suffer for it. The greatest gift that the king of glory can give you is to be served by Jesus Christ and to begin to love like he loves. That is the greatest gift. This is the true grace of God, to be made like Jesus who is the suffering servant. We want to shift our focus now and talk about the mold to which we are being conformed. Who is this Jesus as the suffering servant? And I want you to, to look at this in verse 21 where it says, uh, for you have been called for this purpose, to do good even though you suffer and to continue to do good even though you are mistreated. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. And I want you to know that that word example is, again, a little bit misleading. When we think of an example, we think of a role model. Someone whose life and behavior, the way that they conduct themselves in their work, is uh, inspiring to us and encourages us to follow in their example. And we are to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. That is certainly true. But this word for example is different. It's a very unique word. It's not the usual word for example. It means, uh, the word means something like a writing stencil. You have to work this out a little bit in your minds. Do you know what a writing stencil is? It's the nearest thing in our cultural experience to what Peter is talking about. 
And so, you know, a flat piece of, uh, you know, plastic with, uh, you know, with uh, the alphabet cut into, uh, into it. And children could learn if they wanted. They could learn how to write by tracing. You know, it's now a guide for all the letters. They can learn how to make the shapes of all the alphabets. A, a stencil, a writing guide. That is what he uh, is talking about. Jesus came into the world as a suffering servant, and what he is saying is now he is a stencil, and the Holy Spirit is writing on your heart the image of the suffering servant. Christ has become a mold to which you are being conformed. When he came into the world, he not only served you and suffered for your sins, but in doing so, he also left behind a mold. And the Holy Spirit is now working to conform you to the likeness of this suffering servant. As he has loved you, so you now, because Christ is a stencil, suffering servant is being stenciled on your heart in the power of the Holy Spirit, you begin to be a suffering servant. You are, that's why I use the word mold rather than example. You're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. And this, we uh, read, is the greatest gift that God gives. This is grace in the sight of our God. This is what counts as true favor from the King of glory to be served by Jesus in such a way that you become like him. To be like God is the greatest gift that we can receive. And Jesus perfectly reveals uh, the Lord to us. In our Sunday school class, we have been studying love from Jonathan Edwards, his charity and its fruits. And one of the observations that he gives us is ordinary love. Going to work, very ordinary tomorrow. It's a very ordinary work environment that God has placed you in. Going there and giving yourself as a servant, not only to those that are good and gentle, who earn your respect, but also giving uh, that hearty, you know, working heartily even for uh, masters that are harsh in their assessment and treatment of you. That ordinary love is a greater gift than all the gifts the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's a profound insight. Wouldn't it be great to have the gift of healing, just to be able to walk down the street and lay your hands on people and heal them? When the Holy Spirit gives the miraculous, extraordinary gifts, like the gift of healing or the gift of speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit only gives a very small part of himself, just his power for the moment. But when the Holy Spirit takes Christ as a stencil and writes suffering servant on your heart, he gives his very self to you. The extraordinary gifts are just a little piece of the Spirit, but for this work, it takes, the Holy Spirit is all in. He comes into your heart and he begins to make you like your Savior. He's taking Jesus as a stencil and he's writing suffering servant on your heart. That is the best gift. This is the true grace of God. The best gift that the king of glory can give you is to make you like your savior. Now, uh, this happens. uh, This is 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, Jesus Christ, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this comes from the Holy Spirit, he says. Now, if that is true, that we are being made increasingly, we are being conformed to this mold, the mold that Christ left us, the suffering servant, as we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what we must do. And that's why, in the final point, we must look at our Savior. We must see the suffering servant that has come and has given himself to you. 
First of all, in verse 21, as sort of a, a capstone, we read that Christ also suffered for you. Everything that we are about to say from the moment that Jesus came and was incarnate and became liable to all the miseries and the mistreatment, the mockings, uh, being spit upon, all of those things that he suffered, he suffered for you. Yes, it was for God's glory, but what necessitated him coming was us and our sin, and he did it for our good as well. You must understand that Jesus came as a suffering servant. When he did that, it was for you and for your good. He committed no sin, we read, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. James tells us that the man who is able to control his tongue is a perfect man. So what, when we read that Jesus committed no sin and then we talk about he didn't revile in return, it is so easy for us, I'm sure it is for you, for our tongues to get away from us. We get angry at mistreatment and a little word slips out in anger. That didn't happen. Not a single time did that come out of Christ's mouth when he was being mistreated. In all of these ways, it is important for us to recognize that at one and the same time, Jesus is both serving us and creating a mold to which we are being conformed. So that means uh, we are called to be a people, and we are being made a people, as we are conformed to Christ, who don't lash out in anger in our words when we are mistreated. But there, is, uh, there are vitally important differences, because he goes on to say, Peter goes on to say, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We are called to do good work even for those who mistreat us. But we are never called to bear their sins. But Christ, as the suffering servant, was called to bear your sin and my sin. Brothers and sisters, we fail on a daily basis. We slip into pursuing work for money and for personal fulfillment. And we give the quality of work that we give precisely in as much as we feel that we're being paid enough and we are being fulfilled enough. We constantly slip back into that, that very self-serving motivation in our work. Those are sins, and Jesus bore those sins in his body on the cross. We are all guilty of not loving the way that Jesus loves, but Jesus bore those. That means he has taken away your guilt. That means you don't have to approach your work, even though you fail oftentimes in loving like Jesus loves. You approach it in the freedom. You have no more guilt, no more shame. Christ bore that for you as an act of love to you. And through that work, he has set you free from the power of sin in your life as well by justifying you in the presence of the Lord. You know, if you think about it, one of the reasons that you pursue money is for approval. You get a lot of money, and that's one way that people, you know, you can put it all on display and you feel approved. You feel important because of all the outward material possessions that you have. It's a way of seeking approval. But when you realize that you already stand approved because of what Jesus did, it sets you free. You don't have to abuse work to seek approval in any way. Your approval does not depend upon the work or the money that you make. It sets you free from personal fulfillment. One of the reasons you seek personal fulfillment is because you are not fulfilled and satisfied knowing that you are justified and reconciled to the living God. 
But when you look at Jesus and you see that you are perfectly justified, you are fulfilled. You're happy. Nothing de- uh, depend, you know, nothing, your happiness depends on nothing more, uh, more importantly than on being reconciled to the Lord. He is your greatest happiness. When you find satisfaction ministered to your heart in Jesus Christ who took your sins for you, you're fulfilled. You're happy. And now in that happiness and the strength of, of the joy of forgiveness, you can go about your work and use it not for your, uh, abusing it for yourself, but using it as a way to love your neighbor and to do good for your earthly employers. Notice that Jesus died for a purpose. He says he, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And I want you to know and pay very careful attention. It's a, it's a purpose clause, right? He died for a purpose, and his purpose in dying is that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. But it is not that Jesus died in the hopes that we, on our own initiative, would die to sin and live to righteousness. You know, Christ has his part is to die, and he has a dying wish, please now live for, you know, die to sin and live for righteousness. As though the purpose were our, depended on us and our inward resolve and commitment to die to sin and live to righteousness. What we must understand in this purpose clause is that it is Christ's purpose. Christ died on purpose, and he will have the purpose for which he died. He himself will see to it through the power of the Holy Spirit that you become someone who dies to sin and lives more and more to righteousness. It is not upon you. Okay, Christ did his part. Now you go and do your best to die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ is with you. He now dwells, the suffering servant now dwells in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is making you like himself. He died for a purpose, and he will accomplish his purpose in, you, in your heart and in your life, and even in the way that you do and approach your work. And finally, we are not alone. You notice that for once we were, once we were alone, for we were continually strained like sheep. But now what does it say here? Look again. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And there again, it could be a little bit clearer. That word for returned is actually a passive. It's actually in the passive tense. I don't know why English translations have it in the active voice. That, do you see the difference that it makes? The, here's the difference. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardians of yours. It's not like you were out strained and then suddenly you wisened up and you said, you know what, I had it much better. I think I will return and I will go home. And of your own free accord, you decided to come and return to the shepherd and the guardians of your soul. That's not the situation. What Peter says is, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Do you see the difference? Christ is the great shepherd. He came to seek and to save the lost. He does not allow his sheep to go out wandering in the hopes that they will come back to him. He goes out as the good shepherd, and he goes out and he seeks and he saves the lost. He came to to save the lost sheep of Israel. He goes out as the great shepherd, and he... Uh, picks us up when he finds us and he carries us home. He is the good shepherd. We have been returned because Jesus has came and he has sought us. That means we are not on our own as we pursue a life of suffering service, as we seek to do good work even to those uh, who don't appreciate us and mistreat us. Dearly beloved, the only way that you will be able, when you are in that situation, of trying to do good for a boss who is mistreating you, 
who is excessively harsh, who is exacting and never satisfied with your work, the only way you'll be able to continue giving your best is if you know that Jesus is your shepherd. He's carrying you. He is with you. He himself is at work in your heart. You must see the way that Jesus has served you. I hope you can see this morning how the coming of the King of Glory as the suffering servant, how it shapes our work. First of all, how it uh, destroyed the uh, evil institution of slavery and ultimately opens the way for the end of all oppression. I hope that you can see that. In our culture, it is so customary to pit the wealthy against the poor. And so long as we do that, there will always be an us and a them. The beloved us and the hateful them out there who are unworthy of respect, who are unworthy of any good treatment. And unintentionally, that sort of way of thinking and approaching things will perpetuate oppression in the world. The history of revolutions is the sad history of the oppressed who are hurt and who are angry seizing power and control from others and then beginning to oppress their oppressors because they have been driven on by hate and by hurt. There's a reason that one of the images for the French Revolution is the guillotine because of the massive amount of people that have been killed in that sort of approach. Only Christ has power to end oppression by serving us and giving us the love to serve both the good and the gentle, as well as the corrupt and the harsh in their treatment. Only in Christ are all truly one, rich and poor, slave and free. All are one in Jesus Christ. Tomorrow you won't be called to, to anything glorious like a revolutionary activity. It will seem to you to go, and as you go about the work that God has called you to do, again, whether in school the work you're doing in retirement, the way the opportunities you have to serve there, uh, whether it's in the workplace or in the home, as you go out tomorrow, it'll feel very ordinary. But what I want you to know, this is the true grace of God. When you are able, in your work, to approach it truly as an act of love for others, to do good to all people, and you can do that because Christ dwells in your heart. That is the greatest gift. The greatest gift that the King of Glory can give you is to be served by Jesus and to begin to be like Jesus in the way that you love others. Let's ask that God would give us that great gift.